All right, amen. Well, this is a special weekend for us as a church because we are going to be partnering and we are partnering with Compassion International to release children from poverty in Jesus' name. See, we believe in partnership. We believe in collaboration. We believe in cooperation, right? There's lots of needs in the world and so we're willing and we want to partner with all expressions, all different kinds of expressions of the body of Christ to meet needs. Now, why Compassion? Maybe you don't know about compassion. Maybe you do, but you might go, well, why would two cities partner with compassion? Because it's part of our larger vision. What is our vision? We want to reach every man, woman, and child. And we want to give them repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the gospel. So if you would go, well, why would we partner with compassion? Here's, here's kind of, I'll give you a couple things tonight or this morning. But the, the first thing is that we love kids and we care about poverty. Like we love kids. Now today, most Americans don't know what to do with kids, Right. People don't want to have kids. Women look at kids as a burden on their body. Men look at kids as a burden on the budget. You can go to places like uh, Portland, Oregon, of course, and you see billboards. There's billboards in Portland, Oregon right now going up that say, stop having kids. Could you imagine driving? Well, what is this? And the website is stophavingkids.org. Now, don't go there right now. I've been there. It's all that goofy jargon. Kids are bad for the environment. There's like words I've never heard of, like antinatalism. It's a, listen, it's the opposite of the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview said kids are wanted and kids are welcomed and said this, Jesus loves kids, right? Remember he said, you've got to become like a kid. You've got to be, have a childlike faith. Remember when the disciples, the one, one of the only times we hear that Jesus gets angry, it's when the disciples are trying to keep kids from him. Now that's really interesting because if I were to say to you, well, Jesus loves kids, you might not even be a Christian. You might go, well, of course Jesus loves kids. But here's what we know from that story. Kids love Jesus. What kind of guy is Jesus that kids want to hang out with him so bad that people are trying to keep the kids away from him? See, we love kids. Now, what is a kid? Now, that's hard to you know, articulate. What is a kid? Well, they, they bring certainly a sense of wonder and purity to life, right? Have you ever gone on like a walk with like a four-year-old? They live in a different world than we do, Right? The way they look around and they see everything, There's, there is a wonder and purity to kids. But what are kids? You heard in that video, a kid is both potential and vulnerable. And that's why we're partnering with Compassion because kids have so much potential. That's what, whether you say it out loud, that's what you say every time you have a kid or, or someone you love has a kid. You say something like this, what will they become and what will their personality be like and what will their passions be and what will they do in the world and, and who will they grow up to be? Those are all questions of potential. See, the genius of compassion is compassion is future focused by investing in kids. Because what happens to kids? They grow up. <laughs> they, they don't stay kids. They become doctors and teachers and pastors and politicians. They become leaders. They become missionaries. And, and so, so a kid is potential, but a kid is vulnerable, right? I mean, a kid is needy. If you ever had a kid, you know that. You're like, this kid is a full-time job till they're five for somebody. They easily get sick. They need... <laughs> They, when they're first born, they don't know how to speak. I mean, it's like, you've got, they need education. They need so much. So a good way to think about a kid is, well, they're potential and they're vulnerable. The second thing is, we, so we, we care about kids. We, we love kids and we care about poverty. Now, poverty is complex. The Bible breaks poverty down into two types of poverty. There is spiritual poverty and there is financial poverty. Spiritual poverty is the poverty of the soul. Financial poverty is the poverty of the purse. Now, lots of Americans have spiritual poverty. Here's what spiritual poverty is. I'm empty on the inside. The Bible says I have no hope. That's, the, that's what a spiritually poor person is. They, they are without God and without hope. I don't know what to do with my sin. I don't know what to do with my shame. I don't know what to do with my guilt. I don't know where I'm going. I don't have any meaning purpose in this life. I don't have a relationship with God. Okay, that's spiritually poor. Then there's financially poor. 
And we're not talking, we're, not, we're talking, we're gonna talk to you guys today about Uganda. When we talk about Uganda, we talk about compassion kids. This is not relative poverty. Some of you, you, you might be familiar with relative poverty. Other people have a bigger home than me. That's relative poverty. I can't go on the vacations I want to. That might be relative poverty. We're talking about abject poverty. Now, here's the hard thing about poverty, right? The Democrats and the Republicans, every election cycle, they're fighting over why are there poor people? And the Bible says there's three reasons there's poverty, okay? There's calamity, there's oppression, and there's moral failure, personal moral failure. Now, kind of the Democrats and the Republicans both agree, okay, calamity. War happens, tornadoes come, hurricanes, tsunamis, earthquakes. Yeah, that, that could make a person poor. But then the Democrats want to say, it's all oppression, it's all systems and structures, and the Republicans want to say, it's all your fault, you're lazy, and you're not disciplined. And, and the Bible says, yes, it's both. But when we're talking about kids in Uganda, it's no moral failure on their part. Let me tell you the difference between Uganda kids and your kids. Your zip code. Because sometimes the most important and significant things about you, you didn't get to choose. And sometimes your geography becomes your destiny. And so here, here we are, we're saying, listen, we love kids. That's easy, Jesus loves kids. We wanna welcome one kids. And we care about poverty. But then poverty's overwhelming. Like need, needy people, which we'll talk about in a little bit when we get to the text, needy people are, it, the needs of people are completely overwhelming. What are you going to do about abject poverty in Uganda? The answer is probably by yourself, nothing. Right, this is why we say here, we don't think, we don't think about situations, we think about organizations. Like okay, say you see some homeless person and he also appears to be drunk and you also think he has mental illness and he also looks slightly dangerous. What would you do about that? The chance that you will interact with him and make it worse and hurt yourself is almost 100%. So it's like, well, what do you do? It's like, well, you think about the Bethesda Center and you think about Samaritan's Purse and you think about ministries that know how to do this. When we think about abject poverty all over the world, when we think about 663 million kids living in poverty, it's like overwhelming. Not as overwhelming when we think about compassion. Because compassion says you can make a difference by sponsoring one kid, you can change life. It's like, well, that's something that I could do, that I would do, that I should do. Wow, that could make a difference. But here's the second reason we're excited about compassion for you. One of my desires is to connect every person's heart in this church to God's global purposes in the world. So just so you know, we don't serve a tribal deity. Jesus Christ is not simply the tribal deity over the triad. And we're hoping these 1.8 million people in the triad, we, we, yes, he's over the triad, but he's a global God who's way too glorious to be worshiped by one skin color or one language or one ethnicity or one culture. Um, and so we have this global God. And so then the question is, well, how do I connect and how do you connect your hearts to God's global purposes? Well, let me tell you what a lot of the answer is a lot of times. People say, well, everybody here needs to go there. Well, that sounds great. We call those short-term mission trips, but most of you won't go. And there's, it's, it's not your fault, it's, I'm, not, I'm not beating you up about it. I mean, you only get so much vacation, right? COVID's made things hard with travel. Some of you don't wanna raise support. Some of you are afraid. I mean, who knows all the reasons that you will never go on a short-term mission trip. Like if a church can get 10% of its people one time in their life to go for a few days to the DR or something like that, it's like Nobel Peace Prize for you. Because it's very, very hard to do. So, so then the question is, well then how? How would you connect your heart and your kids' hearts to God's global purposes? Well, we think compassion, because well, by the way, what you want your kids to do is you want them to taste mission and adventure and good deeds as part of Christianity from a young age, and you want them to wake up 
And like, hey, there's people with real needs. Like, so, you know, the Mercers will tell you more about this, but we're sponsoring, we already have sponsored three kids, each uh, kid for the age of our kid and the same gender. They basically, birthdays are even near each other. It's kind of cool. Anyway, so we're looking through. I brought the kids over to the office. We're looking through the pictures and my daughter says to me, dad, why do none of the girls have hair? It's like, well, because they have different problems than us. It's too expensive to keep your hair. Like, they, they, it's too hard to keep your hair. It's too hard to, to do all the things that you need to do with hair, so everybody just shaves their head there. It's like, oh, wow, eyes are open. We're having a whole new experience. So here's, I mean, unashamedly, our desire today is to get as many kids as possible sponsored. We're hoping to see three, at least 300 kids. Why? Because we have 300 kids next door. We thought, let's double our kids' ministry. Let's have a, ki- let's have a kids' ministry here, and let's have a kids' ministry in Uganda. And so what, what I want you to see is this arises right out of Scripture. We're not duct taping, you know, compassion and its mission onto something. It arises right out of Scripture. In fact, in James 1, 26 and 27, if you'll turn there, here's what we see. We see the call to care for the needy. Here's what it says. We're just right where we were. Here we are walking through the book of James. We get a great verse. We got a great application for it. Compassion. Here it is. If anyone, so who is anyone? Well, definitely you. (laughs) You're in the category of anybody and everybody, okay? Um, If anyone thinks he is religious. Now, follow that word because that word's gonna be used three times, either religion or religious. Okay, if anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart. Interesting, so you can not just be deceived about one dimension or one element or one area of your life. We talked about that all last week. You can be deceived about your entire religion, about your entire faith, about your entire Christianity. That's what he's saying here. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Yikes. Worthless. That's insulting. God's like, well, your worthless faith is, your worthless faith is insulting to me. Look at this. Verse 27, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So we've got to talk about what does the word religion mean? Okay, so I often use the word religion kind of, I joke about religion. I talk about it in the negative sense. That's not what, I'll tell you what James means in a second. But like today, if somebody says you're religious, if I said you're very religious or you're very religious, or if you ever had anyone say that about you, because by the way, when people meet me as a pastor, they immediately like, they wipe their hand off or something like that. They shake my hand, okay? I don't fully understand that. And then, and then they, they, they say, they apologize for the curse words they've said. Uh, and they tell me the one religious person that they know. This happens all the time to me. Um, and, and so normally when people mean like, hey, my aunt's religious, grandma's religious, you know, Aunt Betty's religious, they mean that as a compliment, but something they would never want said about themselves. It usually means they're a good person. It normally means they go to church, okay? So for most, religion in a negative sense is external conformity. It's empty. And it's what Jesus had the hardest and harshest words were, were for the religious leaders and their empty, man-centered, tradition-oriented, external behavior. Now, it can look different. It can look like, for you, it can look like raising your hands. And it can look like coming to church. And it can look like singing songs and listening to sermons. But here's what religion means in the context. Because what, what is religion? Well, here's what literally he's saying. Religion is me responding to what God has done for me. That's religion. Religion is my response to what God has done for me. Here's the better word for that today, the word that we would use, worship. Worship is all of me responding to all that God has said, all that God has promised, all that God has done. That's what worship is. And here's what James is saying. And this is just, 
this, these aren't my words. These arise right out of Scripture. Here's what James is saying. If your Christianity does not change you and help others, it's worthless and useless. That, that's, that's, the whole, that's the whole passage. If your Christianity does not change you and help others, it is worthless and it is useless. Now, here's why both of those are important. Because if you look at the verse, you can see these in verse 26 and 27. He says, and this is James, right? James is so practical. He's so personal. We don't really like it. But he's, right? He's like, okay, you know, if your worship is going to change you, it's going to show up in your speech. That's verse 26. It's going to show up in your separation from the world. That's verse 27. And it's going to show up in your willingness to serve the least and the last and the leftovers of society. Those are the three places. And here's what I love about that. He says it's going to show up in making you holy and helping others. It's going to show up in you loving Jesus and caring about biblical justice. It's going to show up in heart change and in good deeds. And here's why this is important, because if you grew up, and some of you did, you grew up in more of an independent, fundamentalist church, they only talk about Christianity changing you. This, is, this tends to be the older generation as well. It's like, well, why? we don't need to build ha houses for habitat. It's not our responsibility, the city and the poor condition that it's in. We don't, homeless shelters and soup kitchens, we don't need to be a part of that. That tends to be, Christianity is just about Jesus and my personal relationship and him changing me. It's like, no, respectfully, no. I mean, you can't honestly read the New Testament and think that. But the, the younger generation in the mainline churches and the theologically liberal churches, they tend to be, we don't talk about the Bible. We don't talk about heaven and hell. We don't talk about Jesus. We don't talk about personal repentance. We don't believe the Bible's the word of God. But we talk a lot about good deeds. We talk a lot about words like mercy and compassion, but we take them out of context. And that tends to be the younger generation. And so what he's saying is when you become a Christian, it changes your generosity and your purity. This is amazing. So it, it makes you a more, and by the way, these are the two areas that people want to act like they're Christians, but those two areas will never change. I want to act like I'm a Christian, but except for my wallet, except for my time and my talent and my treasure, but everything else is as the Lord. It's like, what is, that's all there is. Or purity. I want to act like I'm a Christian, but really inside, I haven't dealt with anything. I haven't repented. I look the same on the inside as everybody else. I've learned the external conformity of religious behavior. So I'm going to take all three of these. We're going to look at it. It's speech, separation from the world, and service toward the last and least. Let's go in order. Uh, first one says this, our separate, or, uh, our, the words that we speak. Look at verse 26. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. So he starts with our words. Here's what he's saying. If you today, or if I today, if I'm up here and I'm preaching, and you're like, this is going great, and Compassion Kids get sponsored, and we sing songs, and I close at the end with a prayer, but I get in the car and I yell at my kids. He's saying, what good is your religion if it's not showing up in your words? If it's not showing up in how you interact with people. Now, here's what we know as Christians. We know, I mean, if, if anybody knows this, we know words are powerful. I mean, what do words do? Well, according to Genesis 1, the first thing we're told about God is that by his word, he creates the world. Okay, so words create, and they convict, and they convert, and they comfort. I mean, the word, the word of God does a lot. You also know words are really powerful by personal experience. Do you remember when your parents, when we were growing up, a lot of our parents told us sticks and stones will break our bones, but words will never hurt us? Liars! right? You know that because something your ex said, your ex whatever said to you still lives with you. I will talk to grown men who are still dealing with something their dad said 20 years ago. Some of you, you still think about something your spouse said five years ago. 
So what happens is we know words are powerful, yes, theologically. We also know it personally and practically by our experience. And so what the principle here is that words create worlds. Um, and, and if you want the world of your home to change, you need the words in your home to change, right? I mean, that's, that would be the most practical first step. And some of you, the way you talk to your spouse, the way you talk to your parents, the way you talk to your kids, the way you talk to your coworkers, like, okay, you want your, you know, the world of your office to change. Okay, good. The words in your office need to change. And, and the big principle, and I'm not talking a lot about words today because James mentions it in every chapter, so we're going to hit it hard later. And he devotes almost all of chapter three to it. But what you'll see here is he says, you're supposed to bridle your tongue. Now, here's, here's a word that we don't like today. He's talking about self-control with your speech. Now today, the average American thinks what it means to be mature is to be authentic and vulnerable. Well, that's a good thing. And transparent, and that's also a good thing. But people use that as an excuse to just say whatever they want to say all the time. If I feel it, oh, I, I'm actually so real and I'm so mature that I'm just gonna tell you everything that I feel. It's like, well, actually, that's foolishness, the Bible says. And that restraint with your words and self-control with your speech is actually a sign of spiritual maturity. This is the language of a bridle. What is a bridle? A bridle is headgear for a horse. That's what it is. And the bit goes in the mouth and the reins go to the owner. And what you're basically saying, it's this beautiful picture of God. I'm gonna put your word in my mouth and in my heart, and I'm gonna give you the reins of my tongue, and I'm gonna let you control it by your power for your glory. Some of you, you need to bridle your tongues, and when it comes to social media, you need to bridle your thumbs, okay? <laughs> right, I mean, the, the principle of social media is when in doubt, don't, don't, that's it. So I'm like, that's all I needed, thank you. Yep, yeah, that's right. Um, and so this, this whole idea of being self-controlled with our words, and then the other principle of words is words reveal what you worship, right? You, you start talking to someone, you realize they love, they're obsessed with their hobby. They're obsessed with some romantic interest. They're obsessed with their next vacation. They're obsessed with money, they're, whatever it is. They're obsessed with some sports team. It, it comes out in their words. But it's helpful to know because words reveal our worship, so it kind of makes evangelism understandable. It's like evangelism, I know for a lot of us Christians, evangelism is like scary. Like, well, when are we gonna talk and what should we talk about and who should we talk and what's the right time to talk? It's like, well, if you love the Lord with all your heart, it's gonna show up in your words. And so you're gonna be at work and it's gonna come up. It's actually not gonna be that awkward for you because it's actually what you care about. It'd be like you're talking about something else that you love and are excited about and it just overflows from your life. Okay, so here's the first thing. The first thing he basically says is uh, that true worship shows up in your words. And I'm like, God, we don't like that. I just wanted to like show up somewhere and take notes and act like that was changing me. He says, no, it shows up in your words. Second, it shows up in your separation from the world. Look at verse 27. Verse 27 says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So it's this interaction with the world. First it says to keep yourself unstained, or literally it could be unclean, or, or to keep yourself clean. So this is very interesting, and I want us to understand this about Christianity. Part of what I try to do every week up here is talk about the difference between Christianity and every other religion. Every other religion says make yourself clean. Christianity says keep yourself clean. So what God has done is God has made us clean by the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. By the power of the Spirit, by the grace of God, we are made clean clean. Now, <laughs> what happens, you'll meet people all the time and they're trying to make themselves clean. The most common is I did something in my past I feel really guilty for. You meet guys about this, probably girls too, but I meet guys about this all the time. You did something in high school. You did something in Vegas. You did something on vacation. You know, you did something in college. You did something early when you were single. Who knows what it is? And people feel an enormous amount of guilt for it. And sometimes they devote their whole life to not doing that again. So the well, 
you can't clean yourself up. We, we don't clean ourselves up. We receive the cleansing from Christ, and then we keep ourselves clean through repentance and faith. See, here's what sin does. Sin, it does a lot of things. But sin makes us guilty and dirty, okay? A lot of times we only talk about guilt. Like when we, So let me give you two big words today, justification and expiation. I know they're big words. But just, justification is that Jesus pays the penalty of sin instead of me in my place, so I am forgiven. And the penalty of sin is off of my life. And we say to that, amen. But the problem is a lot of times we feel, still feel dirty because that's what sin does. Sin makes us dirty. And expiation is the doctrine that Jesus Christ cleanses us from our sin through confession. It's a beautiful teaching. And this is really, really important because you'll meet people. And I've heard stories before of guys who look at pornography and then they feel like they need to take a shower. It's like, well, why is that? It's their soul telling their body, you're not clean right now. I, on the other end, you'll see people who they've actually, sometimes sin has been done to you. I think particularly young women. They'll be in some dating relationship or something happened in college or something happened one night and they will feel very dirty because of something somebody else did to them. The good news of the gospel is Jesus cleanses us from the sin that we've done and the sin that has been done to us. And then what it means to be a Christian is that we keep ourselves clean through confession, not through covering. See, the temptation, instead of to come clean and confess our sin and to stay clean that way, is to cover it. This is as old as our first parents, guys. This is what Adam and Eve did, right? They sin, what do they do? They hide behind the bush. They make themselves fig leaves. And one of the signs that you may not be a Christian is you're covering your sin instead of confessing and coming clean. You're deleting your browser history. You're paying with cash. You're lying. I mean, one of the definitions of lie is to cover. That's what it is. I'm covering something up that I don't want anyone else to see. What well, says that we're supposed to be unstained? What is a stain? Well, I don't know a lot about laundry, but <laughs> I know a little bit. And, and I know one of the principles of stains is get it out as quick as possible. And the worst thing you could do about a stain is to act like it's not there and keep covering it up. And so whatever you're dealing with today, wherever you do need to be cleaned, wherever you do need to confess, the, the most time wasted is the time getting started. And so this is the time now to confess. But then what's interesting is he says, be separated from the world. Now, it's interesting. Like, what does that mean? Because how are we supposed to interact with the world? It's not an easy, it's not an easy uh, question for Christians to answer. You know, I mean, there's verses that say, be in the world, not of it. It's like, well, what does that mean? That's kind of hard. You know, we're told in John 3 that God loves the world, gave his only son. Like, okay, so he loves the world. Why, why am I supposed to be separated from it? But then First John writes in First John 2, don't love the world. It's like, well, hold on. John, you also wrote the gospel of John. You said God loves the world. You tell me not to love the world. What does that mean? Well, let me tell you what it means. We are to love the people of the world, not the value systems of the world. The problem with us, if we're just real honest, is that we do the exact opposite of that. God says, I want you to love the people of the world and I want you to hate the value system. We say, actually, secretly, we hate the people of the world. We hate their alternative lifestyles. We hate their arrogance. We hate the way that they live. We don't like them, but we secretly love their value system. Thanks for letting me be part of consumerism and materialism. Thanks for putting so much sexualized content online for me. Thanks for, for talking about the autonomous individual and that my whole life is about me and self-expression. That's a love for the value system of the world. And we hate the people of the world. Well, how do you love the people of the world? It's hard to love people that you don't love. And you, you may go, right, how do you love people that you naturally don't love? Well, let me give you one of the most helpful things I've ever been told is that you realize that the people that you don't love are, are, are in both rebellion and enslavement. 
That's what sin is. It's, it's complex. It's rebellion and enslavement. So right, when other people sin, you tend to think about it as rebellion. I can't believe that you, how could you ever? But when you sin, it's, I don't know. I just, I just felt like I had to. I gave in. I was overwhelmed. I'm struggling with this. I felt like I couldn't say no. It's like, well, both are true. There's rebellion and enslavement. And part of the way that you can begin to love the world and the people of the world, that is, is you start to see that they're sinners. And yes, they're rebellious, but they're also enslaved. I've seen guys be freed from anger at their dad because they realize, yes, 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 dad was rebellious in his addiction to alcohol, but he was also enslaved to it. Dad was rebellious in loving work more than you and loving travel more than you, but he was also enslaved to it. Yes, dad left mom for another woman, and that's horrible on so many levels, but he was also enslaved to his own passions. And, and I'm just telling you, it's one of the critical keys to having compassion for other people is when you see their sin not only as rebellion, but also as enslavement. And so what he's saying here is, okay, if you're really going to be a Christian, it has to show up in your words, and it has to show up in how you interact with the world. And, and you interact with the world by keeping yourself clean through confession and loving the people of the world, not the value system of the world. Okay, now here's the final thing. He, he says it shows up in who you're willing to serve. It shows up in who you're willing to serve. Look at verse 27. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father, is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Okay, so here we go. He mentions orphans and widows, and most people don't know what to do with this verse. It's like, orphans and widows? Why orphans and widows? Well, they would be an example, and probably the best example in that time, of what it means to be poor and powerless, right? I mean, if you're a widow, sorry, there's no social security, there's no life insurance policy, there's no social safety net. If you don't have sons that are old enough to take care of you and help you, you're done. How about orphans? Well, you're completely forgotten about. You're completely isolated. And that's just getting started. I mean, those would be two examples. We could add to it today. We could add the unborn and the preborn, who we can't see. We can now, thankfully, with the ultrasound. But we couldn't see our invisible neighbor there. And oh, you want to talk about somebody who's vulnerable. There they are. Or you can go to the other extreme. How about the elderly? I mean, what do we do with most elderly people? Could you go to this home and die? We'll visit you twice a year. We forget about them. There's the disabled, there's the handicapped, there's the single mom, there's the functionally fatherless. The functionally fatherless is like, it's, it's basically dad. Dad exists, but he basically doesn't exist. He's so uninvolved, or he lives somewhere else, or he's emotionally absent, or he's whatever. It's like, well, what, what do you do with the needy people in our lives? Well, here's what's interesting. If you look, it says God, it, it says in verse 27, God is a father. Here's what God says. He wants you to see the needy people with the father's eyes, right? When, isn't this true? When you're a dad, you begin to see life differently. As soon as you become a dad, same with your mom. You become a dad, you're like, oh, my finances are different. I think about dating differently. Arranged marriages seem like a good idea now, you know? <laughs> I think about all of life very differently. I think about the future differently. I think about the type of home we need differently. I think about my savings account differently. I think about my health differently. I'd like to be around. I think about taking risks. You think about every, you see life differently when you're a dad. God the Father says, I'd like you to see the needy like I see the needy. And that's really interesting because what God does is he associates himself with the needy like no other God, there are no other gods, but like no other God in any other religion ever has. So what they call in the Old Testament, they call it the quartet in the Old Testament. It's the four groups of people that God associates himself with the most. Guess who it is? It's the poor, it's the widow, it's the fatherless, and it's the immigrant. It's like, who wants to be their God? 
Who wants to connect themselves and say, I am so connecting myself? It's like, well, no man-made religion did that. Guess what every man-made religion did? I'm the God of the pharaohs. It's like, well, Pharaoh wrote that. (laughs) I'm the God of the king. Well, the king wrote that. Of course, the king wants to say God's with him. And God says, if there's a a certain person that I'm going to say I'm going to connect myself with, it's going to be the least and the last and the leftovers of society. And so he gives us, like, he tells us two things there. If you look at it's a very simple verse. He says, visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Guess what affliction means? Affliction means pressure. That's what it means. It means pain and pressure and being squeezed. And have you ever been in a situation where you felt that? I'm sure live long enough and you will. Something will happen financially. Something will happen with your health. Something will happen with some type of relationship and you're gonna feel some version of, I am under so much pressure and I feel so squeezed. And I don't know, here's, here's what you feel when you're under pressure. I'm stuck. I mean, can the widow or orphan help themselves? Obviously not. That's what it means to be in affliction. I can't do anything about it. What are these kids in Uganda gonna do? It's like they're trying their best, but who knows? They've got hard situations. There's very little hope there. So he says, okay, what I want you to do is I want you to do one word. This is the whole command. It says, okay, so what, God, what do you want me to do with widows and orphans? One word, visit them. Okay, so should I go find the nearest orphanage and just knock on the door and say, hey, guys? So I don't think that's what it means by visit. Do I need to go to some widow's home and maybe bring a meal and sit down and talk to her? Well, that, that would be a nice way to maybe one-on-one visit. Visit is the same word that's used in Exodus. Of It says that God saw the people of Israel in their affliction, and he decided to visit them. Visit is the idea of I'm going to go to them. And it's not that we're above them, it's that we're far from them. Uh, The reason most mercy ministry doesn't work is because there's a sense of superiority in those who are helping others. That doesn't work. I'm better than you. I'm in a place you're not at. I'm gonna come down to your level and then I'm gonna go away. Well, that's that's not what it means to visit. Visit means I'm so sorry, I've been, I've, been, I've been way far away from you. And it's about time for me to get personally involved in your life. See, here's what's the truth, and I'm not here to make anyone feel guilty, but I thought about this a lot this week. What needy person do you know? Is it a single mom? Is it someone who's functionally fatherless? Is it someone who recently lost their husband? I mean, who do you know? Well, here's the answer to that for a lot of us. We have designed... And again, I'm not here to make you feel guilty. Most of you have designed your life so that you never have to interact with anybody who's needy. I'm not saying you're a bad person from doing it. I'm not saying you thought about it super intentionally, but it's like, why do you live in the neighborhood that you live in? It's like, well, get me out of the needy area. I need somewhere that's safe. Well, understandably so. Okay, well, then you're, okay, how about your school? Well, it's North Carolina, so even if I send them to public school, I can choose the public school, and I'll just drive them instead of take them on the bus, and so I'll just choose whatever school. Well, what school? Well, the school that's best for my kids. Well, fair enough. AKA, school where there's no need. There, there are certain areas, some of you won't even drive to that part of the city. It's like you don't even want to be there, right? It's like you don't even want to, it's why you don't look at the homeless people at the stoplight. You're like, I don't know what to do with it, Right? This is why some of you, you've been, you've been a little uncomfortable at our permanent new location. 
Because you drive over there and after you see that it looks like Jurassic Park with a bunch of kudzu, okay? <laughs> after you see that, what else do you see? Well, it depends on what you're looking for, but one of the things that you may see is a lot of need. And you may go, well, what do we do with this? And you may ask this question, well, why don't we do anything about need? And there's a lot of answers to that, okay? I think one of the reasons we don't do anything about need is it's like, well, what would you do? What could we do? And this is why we think, again, organizations, not situations. Okay, homelessness is overwhelming, less overwhelming when we think about partnering with the Bethesda Center, when we think about Samaritan's Ministries. <sighs> Helping women dealing with their unplanned pregnancies, while also there are men who are trying to manipulate them to get abortions, while also we're trying to help them have their kids and then take care of their kids, it's like, well, that's overwhelming. Less overwhelming when I partner with Salem Pregnancy Care Center and Pregnancy Network. And so what we always do is we're trying to think, and so at the same time, when we think globally, what do we do? It's like, well, what, what do we do about, you know, the other, I told you, years ago I went to Mumbai. It's like, they told me, Kyle, you're gonna be in the slums in Mumbai. And I gotta be honest, that was a little scary to me. Slums of Mumbai. Well, less scary when I realized I was going with the International Mission Board and they've been there and they have people on the ground and they know what they're doing. Oh, great, I'm going with an organization so that situation won't be as overwhelming. We just sent a bunch of college kids to Puerto Rico to help. Well, we wouldn't just randomly send kids to Puerto Rico. It's like, oh, they're gonna go with Send Relief. Send Relief has a building there. Send Relief has a ministry there. Send Relief has a strategy there. Great. So when we think about compassion, it's like, what are we gonna do about abject poverty in Uganda? It's like, sponsor a kid. That's what we could do. It's like, well, that's a, that's a next step that I could do, that I would do, that doesn't completely overwhelm me, but actually makes a difference. And, and it's, it's comprehensive gospel care. So, so what we do is, when you think about widows and orphans, and you, or you think about compassion kids, or you, know, or you think about the disabled, you, you may ask the question, well, what do they need? And this is the answer to what everybody needs, what you need and you know, what your kids need, and this is how you know something's true, it works for everybody. Um, you need to understand that every compassion kid, and you as well, that you are a soul in a body in a community. That's the, best way to that's the best way to think about yourself. So you're a soul in an earth suit, okay? You've got your <laughs> some of our earth suits are older than others. Uh, you, you're gonna get a new body in the resurrection because God cares about your body and you're, you're in a community. And so what does compassion do and what does good gospel ministry do? We first, we care for the soul. That's why we talk about Jesus. That's why we talk about forgiveness. This is why the first thing Christians do every time they go somewhere new is they plant a church. It's like, well, of course. This is why Jesus comes with a preaching, teaching, healing ministry. Preaching for the soul, teaching for the mind, healing for the body. But then, you know, why the body? Well, think about this. It's very hard to hear the gospel if you're starving. And so what, what good gospel ministry does is, here's a piece of bread, let me tell you about the bread of life. Here's some water, let me tell you about the living water. Here's something that looks like a home, let me tell you about your home in heaven. And then they have these contexts to understand. Oh, Jesus can fill me up inside, just like this bread did? Yes, Exactly like that. Let's talk about that. This is why, interestingly enough, the second thing that Christians do, don't believe the bad you know, history of Christians. I mean, we all have things that we need to repent of, but there's so many good things Christians have done. When Christians would go to an area, they would do three things. First, they would plant a church because they care for the soul. Next, they would start a hospital. Do you think it's an accident that we live in an area that has Wake Baptist Hospital? I mean, that's, Christians are like, well, we care about the body, and there's lots of things that go wrong with the body, and so we're gonna care for the body. But then the third thing that, that Christians would always do is they would, they would start schools. This is it. It's like, well, plant a church and start a hospital and start a school. It's holistic care. Well, why a school? It's like, well, because kids grow up and they're the future of civilization and they're the future of leadership. And this is why the Puritans, while they were starving and freezing to death, started Harvard in five years. Don't tell me Christians don't care about intellect and education. They do. 
And so why compassion? Because compassion is the most strategic way that we know to partner with an organization that's going to bring uh, comprehensive gospel care, care for the soul that's in a body, that's in a community. See, I had an experience where I got to go about four years ago, got on a plane, went to the Dominican Republic with a bunch of pastors, and I saw firsthand what was happening down there. I saw, I met, I met the compassion kids. Uh, I met the workers there. I saw a compassion project. By the way, if you go, what is a compassion project? Uh, a compassion project, think of like a seven-day-a-week or five-day-a-week uh, VBS all year round. And then add to that kind of a boys and girls club. It's, it's, a holistic, it's a holistic, developmental, educational, spiritual project. And they always connect them to local churches. So basically, here's what's so cool. All we're going to do is be a local church helping other local churches have compassion projects in their areas. And so it's really unbelievable. Now, here, here's the ask for today. The ask is, would you sponsor a kid? Uh, my, me and my family, we had the opportunity, I told you, to, to go early to look at some of the kids. We chose a kid, three kids, because I've got three kids, same age, same gender. I want to show you a picture. This was really great uh, that we just got to, if we can get up there, there it is. Of my, and this has been just such an amazing process. We told them that we were, you might say, well, why Uganda? By the way, we're telling our kids about Uganda. And they're like, my boys are so excited. Like, this is unbelievable. I can't believe we get to sponsor kids in Wakanda. I was like, <laughs> no, no, that's where Black Panther lives. No, 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 no. <laughs> we're, we're doing Uganda, okay? Uh, but they, they were unbelievably excited about it. They took some time um, to, to do this. And so really, what, what is the motivation, guys, at the end of the day? What is the motivation to sponsor a kid. I'm gonna come up here at the end and tell you exactly what it entails, but the motivation is the gospel, right? The motivation is that when you read widows and orphans, you better understand that that's exactly who we were spiritually. When you understand that God, why did God come to us? Because we can't come to them. These compassion kids can't come to us. The elderly can't come to us. The widows can't come to us, and so we go to them. Why? Well, because God came after us. We were a spiritual widow. Here's what that means. We had no hope. Why, does, why is the language of Jesus Christ as our groom and the church as the bride used so much? Because beforehand, we were widows. And we were spiritual orphans. One of the amazing things is that when God forgives you and God saves you and God changes you, you know, he could have just brought you to heaven and you could have just still been a creature. But he decided, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm actually going to not just forgive you. I'm going to adopt you into my family. And it's because of what God has done for us that we now want to do it for other people. See, here's what happens. This is so cool. Today, when you go out there to the tent and you sponsor a kid, what happens is in about a month, a compassion worker in Uganda knocks on their door and they come out. And the compassion worker gets down on one knee and says, listen, I got some really good news for you. You've lived in a world where there's been bad news your whole life. I've got some good news. And listen to this. This is what they tell them. Somebody that you have never met loves you. Wow. Yeah, and somebody that you have never seen has paid a price for you so you can have a different life. Well, here's the coolest thing. He says, well, as, as the kids get older and they start hearing the gospel, they go, oh my goodness. When, they, when someone tells me a God I can't see loves me, you know what the kids think? The first thought is, just like my sponsor. When they think, oh, wait, somebody paid a price so my life could be different? Just like my sponsor. So guys, we're doing this together. This isn't, I'm not just saying you, you, I'm saying let's all do this together. This is the beginning of our impact on the nation of Africa. We have a long-term strategy to do this. Would you partner with us today to release children from poverty in Jesus' name? Let's pray to that end. Lord, that's our prayer. We just, we love kids. We care about poverty.
We care about spiritual poverty. We care about financial poverty, Lord. We thank you that what we sing about, what we celebrate is what, how you came and visited us, Lord. Lord, and may the gospel come to us and work in us, but may it also work through us, Lord. And may we say, I want to be used in the life of other people. And if I have the opportunity to be part of releasing kids from poverty in Jesus' name, if I, if I have a practical way to, to help widows and orphans, I want to do it, Lord. Give us the grace to do it. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.